because this class, uh, Baptism and Confirmation, I believe is perhaps the most important of all of them because everyone here is going to receive confirmation and many are going to receive baptism and confirmation. So real briefly, let's just review, um, because I didn't teach the class last week, let's just review sacraments and then go into baptism specifically and confirmation specifically, okay? So a sacrament, three things, an external sign. Number two, given, uh, instituted by Christ. Number three, gives grace. So what is a sacrament? It's a thing that you can see or taste or touch or smell or all the above. Who does it come from? Jesus. This is very important. People always think that it comes from the church. And it really doesn't. And that's, that's foundational if you're going to be a Catholic. And what does it do? What's a sacrament do? It gives you grace. Okay? That's the whole point. The catechism has a slightly more verbose definition. An efficacious sign of grace. Instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. By which divine life is dispensed to us. A.K.A. grace. I don't know if this point was made last week or not. But I'll repeat it now just in case it was. The word sacrament means pledge or promise. People think sacrament means holy or sacred. It's a a Latin word, sacramentum, and it means promise. What's promised? Who makes the promise? God makes the promise. Who is the promise made to? You. What is promised? And the answer is grace, okay? Invisible grace. It makes it physical. It makes it tangible, Uh, we use things like sacraments in our lives all the time. Anytime anyone receives a medal, anytime anyone receives a trophy, uh, anytime anyone receives a a gift or a card, it's a physical thing, the gift or the trophy or the medal, and it symbolizes something bigger than itself. So if you win a medal, it's a way of making tangible that you're the fastest runner or the highest jumper or whatever it might be. Sometimes we take trips, we bring home souvenirs. You can't take the whole experience home with you, but you can buy a little item and bring back all the memories. And it, that's a kind of a sacramental idea as well. Okay? It's just that we believe that Christ instituted these mysterious sacraments to give us the most important invisible thing of all, which is himself. What's God made out of? What's the stuff of God? If, if I could put it into a into a cup, what would it be? The answer is grace. God's vitality, God's being. He gives it away and promises to give it away. That's what a sacrament is. So we believe that Christ instituted seven of these for specific times in life. I could talk to you about the number seven and the symbolism of the number seven and the Old Testament meaning of the number seven. Seven was the number of the covenant, but I don't want to get too far afield with numbers. But it all begins with baptism, right? That's kind of like birth. And then there's growth, and that's confirmation. And then there's preparation for death, and that's anointing of the sick. And then there's our relationships to one another. That's matrimony. That's holy orders. And then there's food for the journey. That's the Eucharist. There's medicine when we're sick. That's penance. So at all these key times in our lives, God's grace is shared with us, and, uh, and we believe that Jesus himself established all seven of these. Take them in order, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, 
Then there's holy orders and matrimony. Anointing of the sick. Um, and, uh, and I think I forgot to mention confirmation. So at, this might have been mentioned last week as well. If not, I'll repeat it, but it's, it's good to, to hear it repeated again. Every sacrament works in two ways. Number one, Jesus does the work. If you go to Mass and it's celebrated by the worst priest in the world, is your Eucharist the same as the Eucharist celebrated by the greatest, holiest priest in the world? Answer, yes. And that's for your benefit. Now, just to complete the thought, if you go to Mass by the worst priest in the world, is the prayer he offers the same as the holiest priest in the world? And the answer is no. The prayer isn't the same. He's closer to God. His prayer is more effective. But the sacrament is exactly the same. The Eucharist is exactly the same. Does that make sense? If I say an Our Father, is it the same value of an Our Father as an Our Father said by, let's say, Mother Teresa of Calcutta? And the answer is no. She's closer to God or was closer to God. So the prayer might vary based on how holy you are, but the sacrament's always the same. Okay? That's very important. Because who celebrates the sacrament? Jesus does. That's why it's always the same. However, you're going to get more out of every sacrament if you put more of yourself into it. And those are the two ways the sacrament works. Ex opere operato means essentially what Jesus did. Literally means by the work done. Ex opere operantis, it means figuratively what you get out of it is what you put into it. And it means by the work being done. Okay? And just the last... um, point, I hope it was made last week about sacraments, is every sacrament has two basic elements. It has words that are spoken. We call that form. And it has material that's used. We call that matter. So the matter for baptism is what? It's water. The matter for Eucharist is what? It's bread and wine. The matter for confirmation is what? It's oil. Okay. So there's always something material or quasi-material. In the case of confession, it's spoken words. Okay. What you can hear. Uh, but with that as kind of just a, as, as a background, okay, let's take a look at the sacraments for this evening. That's baptism and confirmation. Now, question for you. Jesus died all those years ago. He died on the cross. And sometimes people, thinking people, reasonable, rational thinking people, will ask this question, how does that affect me now? And you get a number of different answers to that question. People will say, well, you know, you just got to have a lot of faith. And some people think that if you work up enough of a kind of like an emotional faith build, emotional state, you know, that just kind of, you can feel the spirit in you. Um, And the simple, very, very simple answer is the way Jesus' suffering and death affects you now is baptism. That's the gateway. That's where it all starts, okay? And I'll try to explain why, and I'll try to explain what, that, what, what difference that makes. Why do we need baptism? This harkens back to the sin and grace class that I believe I did the teaching for. We need baptism because once upon a time, there was a rupture between God and man. And we call this original sin. Somehow, God's grace was rejected by a singular free choice. The scriptures talk about it as the eating of a forbidden fruit. Uh, Whenever I talk to my seventh graders about it, they always think that the original sin was somehow sexual in nature. But the fact of the matter is the original sin was somehow prideful in nature. Somehow, we thought we knew better than God. We thought God really didn't have our best interests at heart. We thought that we would do well 
disobeying God, and somehow that would secure happiness for us that God himself didn't intend to give. That was the original sin. And there's so much in the Genesis story, I won't get into it now, but gosh, it's deep. You used to think of it as just a simple little myth or a simple little fairy tale, but my goodness, when you think about all the details of it, it runs really, really deep. Um, I, I could probably talk about it for a half an hour. But what happened because of original sin? The, the relationship between God and man was ruptured. It was broken. I think I talked about this pretty extensively in the sin and grace class. Um, and many were the consequences of this uh, rupture, uh, the disordered effects on us. We would now suffer. That was never part of God's plan. We would now die. That was never part of God's plan. We would be born in ignorance. Many people would continue to live in ignorance, some by their own free choice. We would suffer from slothfulness and egotism and selfishness. It would be hard to do the right thing. It would be a struggle. All these things are consequences of breaking that relationship that we had with God. Now, there's a a 50-cent word here for you that would be good to know. I think I mentioned this before. The word is concupiscence. And concupiscence is the word that describes this struggle that it is to do the right thing. Why is it so easy to sleep in and so hard to wake up? Why is it so easy to overeat and so hard to be disciplined? Why is it so easy to tell a convenient lie and so hard to tell a hard truth? Answer, we call it concupiscence. It's a disorder. It's not the way it should be. You know, truthfulness and taking care of your health and being good to people and all these things are the right way. But it's hard for us to do the right way. It's disordered how hard it is for us to do the right thing. That's concupiscence. It's a consequence of original sin. When we get to the prayer class, I hope I can make this point. If you advance enough, now this might, this might strike you as really, really hard to believe, but if you advance enough in the spiritual life, you can actually reverse concupiscence. Do you know that? If you get far enough advanced along in prayer, like if you talk to like a, a Mother Teresa or a St. Therese, you'll find that it was easy for them to do the right thing and hard for them to do the wrong thing. It can be reversed. You're not cursed to this forever. It's very advanced, but it, it can happen, and the, and the lives of the most advanced saints are living testimony to it. Okay? Furthermore, um, as a consequence of this rupture that we had with God, we have no hope for anything beyond this life. No reasonable hope. But God did something about it. He intervened. He sent Jesus Christ into the world and, and he took all of our sins onto himself and he paid the price for all this. And how does that affect you? Baptism is how, is baptism is the gateway by which all this gift that God gave you, that's how it breaks through, okay? Um, we're born into this world with natural life only. To receive supernatural life, we need a supernatural birth. And that's what we call baptism. Jesus is the one who reconciles God and man together, as I think I mentioned in the sin and grace class. God and man, the rupture was made. The, the, the break was irrevocable by our own power. But God became a man and took it all onto himself. And baptism is the sacrament by which God's grace comes to a soul for the very first time. Okay, Doesn't mean the person wasn't good. The person had great you know, great human nature and God made him good, but something beyond nature, something supernatural, that starts with baptism. Okay, so let's talk about what happens when someone's baptized. The very first thing that happens when someone's baptized is absolutely every sin that they've ever committed is forgiven. I was once walking through the hospital. 
making my rounds. And a man caught me out of the corner of his eye, called me into the room. Hey, Father, hey, you priest, you Catholic priest? I said, yes. And he says, I've never been baptized. I said, oh, yeah? Yeah, and I'm 83 years old. The doctor's not giving me very much time. I want to be baptized. I said to myself, you know, danger of death, circumstances like this, I can break all the rules and give him baptism right here on the spot. He doesn't have to go to RCIA. So I got a cup of water, and I said the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he started weeping tears of joy. He said, I've always wanted to be baptized. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I just told him, all your sins are forgiven. And he goes, all my sins are forgiven? I said, all your sins are forgiven. You're the holiest person in this entire hospital. And he goes, and he says, that's too good to be true. I said, it's so good it must be true. Why is all your sins forgiven when you're baptized? Because the moment that you're baptized, you're united to Christ. You become like a cell in his body. You become a member of him. There's no sin in Christ. For that moment, at least until you commit a deliberate sin, there's absolutely no sin on you. I baptized a woman once. Same thing in the hospital. You know, you go to the hospital and there's this woman in the hospital and, you know, she's dying. She's only like 35 and she's dying and she's lived a real broken life. And she tells me she lived a real broken life, all kinds of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, that whole kind of thing. And she says, you know, I just, I want to, I just, I've never been baptized. And I, I hear that it's the greatest thing ever and that it forgives all your sins. Can I be baptized? I said, yep, you sure can be. She died the next day. Did she go straight to heaven? Yeah, she probably did. She probably went straight to heaven. Why? Because of her good works? No, because of God's gift. But that's the very first thing that baptism does. It makes you a member of the body of Christ. There's no sin in Christ. The moment you're baptized, every sin is forgiven. And of course, original sin, that original alienation from God, that's erased. And you're made a member of the body of Christ. You're united with him. Okay. Now, of course, the effects of sin remain. Um, concupiscence remains. You'll struggle with this for the rest of your life, this inclination to do wrong. But what does baptism do? Well, this might seem kind of strange now, what I'm about to say. But I hope this sinks in. You were born as a human being. As a human being, you have human nature. You can do the things a human being can do. Um, But because of Jesus Christ, and because of baptism, and because of what baptism is, you're given... God's divine nature. Jesus became a man, took on human nature onto himself, and he lowered divine nature down to human level. He raised human nature up to a divine level. And if you become a member of Jesus Christ by, by baptism, by, by virtue of his, his incarnation, taking on human nature to himself, you become someone who possesses divine nature. Now, it may not look, I didn't like it on day one. Like I said, there's a struggle that has to continue to go on. But when you look at somebody who's really advanced in the spiritual life, you know, go ahead and read about the life of St. Therese. Go ahead and read about the life of, of Padre Pio. Go ahead and read about the lives of, uh, you know, of, of any of the greatest saints. You'll find these people doing things that are just above and beyond. I think I described this in the, in the class on, on saints. I can't remember whether I taught that class or not. But anyway, the, you know, the, you, you, these people are consistently good, even to the most irritating people, even to people who are just constantly, uh, you know, th- th- treating them badly, and they're just incessantly good to these to these people, and and you, you, beyond any human explanation. So it it will begin to show. Let's just say that baptism, like the planting of the seed, if you water that seed, if you let that seed grow, you'll discover what it means very slowly and very surely. What it means 
that God has given you a share in his divine nature. Okay? So that's the mystery of baptism. You become a child of God by adoption. You know how it is with children who are adopted by the king. They're heirs to the kingdom. Of your own merely human nature, you have no claim to eternal glory. You just, it's just not in mere human nature, no more than an animal does. But with baptism, you do. Okay? With baptism, you do. You're given gifts. Again, gifts that have to grow, gifts that have to be developed. But you're given three big gifts and seven other gifts. Now, here are the three big gifts that you get in baptism. Faith, hope, and charity. I think I've described faith to you before. Did I tell you ever the story about the, the, the imaginary story about the guy who was captured in Afghanistan? And did I tell you that story? It's my favorite analogy for faith. Okay, let's, just, let's talk about faith for just a second. You're given the gift of faith. Faith is the ability to believe what God has revealed by the authority of the one revealing it. Let's talk about what that means. Here's my favorite story to describe what faith is. Imagine two prisoners in the army. They're in Afghanistan, both prisoners of war. Um, one day, one of the prisoners gets set free, goes back home to the USA, goes and finds the relatives of the other prisoner who's also with him in the prison in Afghanistan, knocks on the door. Woman opens up the door, sees a man in a uniform, a soldier, at the door. The, man at the soldier says, I've got great news, I've got great news. I was in prison with your brother and they set me free and they're going to set him free too. They told me they're going to set him free. He should be coming home any day. And the woman at the door hears that news from the soldier and she's so happy because now her brother's going to come home. Why does she believe the soldier? Because the soldier is in a position to tell her the truth. He should know. He's not going to tell her a lie. He's not making it up. He's telling her the truth. When she hears this truth, she believes what was said on the authority of the one who said it. And it completely changes her life. Now imagine that same woman who doesn't believe what is said on the authority of the one who says it. Imagine the soldier knocking at the door, says to the woman, I was in Afghanistan in prison with your brother. I was set free. He's going to be set free soon too. He should be home any day. And the woman says, oh, that's a very interesting theory. I'll have to weigh your theory against other theories about what might have happened to my brother. The soldier will turn to the woman and say, don't you believe me? Why would I lie to you? It's the truth. It's good news. Consider now that the one telling you the story is not a soldier come home from Afghanistan, but God himself. If you believe what was said on the authority of the one who says it, it changes your whole life. Absolutely everything has changed. Your whole moral code has changed. Your whole sense of worry and anxiety that you used to have, it's all gone. It's a brand new life. And faith is what makes it possible because you believe the one who says it. Now, you can't do that on your own. You can try, but it won't work. But you can do it with God's help. What I want to say is, for if you've been baptized, that seed's been planted. You can make that seed grow. Faith is the root of everything else. Faith is also the root of hope. That's the next great gift. Now, hope is the trust that God's going to provide everything you need. Not everything you want, but everything you need. If I really believed that God would provide everything I need, I'd never worry again. I've got a little bit of that in me, but not nearly as much as God would want me to have. It was given in baptism. I want to tell you, that gift was given in baptism. And lastly, charity. It's the ability to love God above all else and to love others for the sake of loving God. I can't do that on my own. 
but I can, and, and, and it's the most beautiful thing in the world when it's lived, if I let that seed grow. What I want to tell you is that seed was given in baptism. Faith, hope, and charity. They're, if you've been baptized, they're in you. Just waiting for nutrients. Just waiting for a chance to grow. Okay? So that's what we're working on every day. There are lesser gifts. These are called the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Everyone thinks they're given in confirmation. They're not given in confirmation. They're given in baptism. Okay? They're given in baptism. They're strengthened in confirmation, but they're given in baptism. They're wisdom and counsel, which is the ability to help you make right decisions. Knowledge and understanding of the truths of the faith. Piety and fear of the Lord, which is another way of saying reverence and awe. And fortitude. Courage. When you put them together, they, you know, they, 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 make, a, they, they make a beautiful image. The ability to make right decisions about the truths of the faith out of reverence and awe for God and the courage to put it into practice. That comes in baptism. You're made a member of the church. When do you become a member of the church? When you're baptized. When did I become a member of the church? When I was baptized. Now, this is the point that I tried to make a second ago. Uh, you're, it's, it's very mysterious. You're actually part of the body of Christ. You're alive with the same life. Jesus once said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now the thing about branches is they're not just associated with the vine, they're alive with the same life of the vine. And Jesus you know, says, apart from me you can do nothing. Not apart from me you can do little. Apart from me you can do nothing. And people will say, yeah, well I see all kinds of people doing all kinds of things apart from Christ every day. And, and what's it going to come to? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Never... Ever heard of the poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley? Anyway, just I'll tell very briefly. It's a, a poem by this British author, Percy Shelley, and it's called Ozymandias, and it describes this guy who's going through Egypt, and he comes across this hieroglyph in Egypt in the sands, and he reads the hieroglyph because he can read hieroglyphics, and the hieroglyph says, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my mighty works in despair. Behold my mighty temples. Behold my mighty cities. Look at the mighty works of my hand and tremble in fear. And he says he looked, and the poem continues, he looked out across and saw nothing but the sands of Egypt. And it was a way of saying, sic transit gloria mundi. Thus passes all the glory of the world. You've heard that before, right? Sic transit gloria mundi. Thus passes the glory of the world. I once saw that written on a bedpan, which I thought was just great. <laughs> it, it all fades to nothing. It, it comes to nothing. But what's done in Christ is there forever. It's, it's there forever. So, you're made one in his body. You're alive with his same life. Consider this also. And I hope I'm not throwing too much at you too fast here. Um, you become a member of the body of Christ. We say that makes you a member of the common priesthood of believers. Let me try to describe what that means. I'm a priest, and that has a meaning. I don't think we've had the priesthood class yet. When I used to teach all the classes myself, I knew what everything had been taught. But I don't think you've had the priesthood class yet. So I'll give you a preview of the priesthood class. This is what a priest is. A priest is a mediator, a go-between. Somebody who goes between God and man and brings about a union between God and man by means of sacrifice. That's what a priest is. Jesus was the priest. He was both God and man and brought about a union between God and man by means of his own sacrifice. I hope you know at some instinctive level that sacrifice somehow you know this at an instinctive level, sacrifice is what set wrongs things right. I grew up in Montana. And in Montana, there's this, where I lived in, there's an enormous cliff. They called it Sacrifice Cliff. It's probably 200 feet tall. It's a huge cliff. And they call it Sacrifice Cliff because 
when the Northern Pacific Railroad was, was making its way through Montana in the 1870s and 1880s, the settlers brought with them diseases that the Indian had never seen before, including smallpox. They had no defenses against these diseases, and all these people died. All these Indians died. Well, they thought the gods were angry with them. So what did they do? They performed a sacrifice. The Crow Indian performed a sacrifice on Sacrifice Cliff. They took 12 of their bravest warriors, put them on 12 of their best horses, blindfolded the horses, drove them off the cliff because they thought that the horses would not run off the cliff if they could see. But their best horses, their best warriors, why did they drive their best horses, their best warriors off a cliff? Because somehow instinctively in the marrow of our bones we know that sacrifice is somehow the way that wrong is made right. Even a Crow Indian who's never even heard the gospel before somehow knows sacrifice sets wrong things right. Well, by virtue of baptism, you're united to Christ. I hope I made that clear. Christ brought about a union between God and man and set all wrong things right by virtue of the cross. This is what it means when you say you can offer things up. Have you ever heard anybody, ever heard anybody say offer it up before? Okay, if you're a Catholic, you will. You know, you stubbed your toe. Mom says, offer it up. Um, you, you got an extra bill from the IRS. Offer it up. Whatever it might be, offer it up. Uh, people say, offer it up. What does it mean to offer it up? It means to unite it to Christ's suffering on the cross. If you are united to Jesus Christ by virtue of baptism, and by virtue of baptism you are, then no sacrifice of yours is ever have to be wasted again. You can, in your privacy of your mind, just you simply you just say, Lord, I unite this with your sacrifice. And somehow your sacrifice becomes united with Christ's own sacrifice on the cross. And you can do good for people. You can offer your sacrifice up for somebody's conversion of heart. You can offer their sacrifice up for somebody's difficult time they're going through. It's not your sacrifice, it's Christ's sacrifice. But yours is united to his. Why? Because of your baptism. Because of what we say baptism is. That's what we say the common priesthood of believers Whenever you go to Mass, take all your prayers, take all your intentions, take all of your deepest goodwill, unite it to what's going on at the, at the altar. Don't waste it. Never waste another sacrifice again. When something goes wrong, say, Lord, I offer this up to you. Remember somebody once told you, by virtue of baptism, you're united to him, okay? That's what it means when it means you're part of the common priesthood of believers. It also leaves an indelible mark on the soul, I could describe that more, but I don't want to get too far afield. Basically, it means that you belong to Christ forever. And you can never undo it. This real angry man at a past parish, he called up, I said, I want to undo my baptism. Pastor had him on the phone, he goes, sorry, you can never undo your baptism. There's got to be a sin I can commit that will undo my baptism. There is no sin you can ever commit that will ever reverse your baptism. Even the souls burning in hell... They, they're, they're, you can still tell they're baptized. Their soul was united to Christ in a way that can never be reversed and can't be repeated. If you're baptized, I can't baptize you again. Who knows, maybe some of you talking to Deacon Noah here in the class have what are known as conditional baptisms. Some of you might have had a baptism in which the circumstances might have been suspect. And sometimes a priest will do a baptism in which he will say the words, if you have not been baptized before, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit conditioned on those words if you have not been baptized before because you can't be baptized twice. Once it's done, it's done forever and it can never ever be undone. Okay, It can never ever be undone. Um, the essential rite of baptism, 
are the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit while pouring water. The reason why I emphasize that is because baptism is the one sacrament that anybody can perform in an emergency. You can be a Muslim and perform baptism. You can be an atheist and perform baptism. All you have to do is use water, say the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and have the intention of your mind at least of offering this person what Christians consider to be baptism. And it counts. Now you want it to be done by the ordinary minister, a bishop, priest, or deacon. Um, the, he, nine, 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 nine times out of 10,000 won't screw it up. Uh, and you only want to do this in the most extreme of extreme of emergencies. I knew somebody who was in the emergency, was in the ambulance with his dying baby daughter and he performed an emergency baptism. Okay. That's, that's a fair time to, to, to do an emergency baptism. But somehow people, somehow people get this idea that anybody can perform baptism and they go and they do it. And then that poor person for the rest of his life has to explain that, you know, someone performed a baptism on me and who was this person? And I know I was teaching high school and a girl, I taught this very class to her and she, she baptized her boyfriend in the kitchen sink because her boyfriend wasn't baptized. And she, the priest told me anybody could do it. Right? Please don't do it unless it's an emergency, okay? But that's the essential right. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit while pouring water. People say, does it have to be holy water? No, any water will do, right? As long as it's water. That's all you need. Now, who gets baptized? In the ancient church, it was mostly adults because the gospel was still new and people were hearing the gospel for the very first time and they were already adults. But infants as well. Acts of the Apostles says entire households were baptized. That includes the babies. And it was clearly said that the infants were baptized in the second century. So, you know, we're talking about the first hundred years after Jesus died. Um, so, yes, little infants, little babies are baptized. Uh, even though they don't understand what's going on. The sheer giftedness, the sheer gratuitousness of baptism is emphasized in the little baby who gets baptized. It's also important to know that baptism is just the beginning. So sometimes people will come forward and they'll want to have their kid baptized and they have no intention of raising their child in the faith. No intention whatsoever. Can the priest offer the child baptism? He can't. There has to be some hope that the child's going to be raised in the faith. It's not a cute little ceremony for a baby. It's supposed to be the beginning of a life. Okay? So that's very important. Baptism is supposed to be the beginning. Parents, 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 parents are the first teachers of their children in the ways of the faith. They're not the only teachers of their children in the ways of the faith. Right? Sometimes you'll say that parents are the first teachers of their children in the ways of the faith and they will begin to think that they're the only teachers of their children in the ways of the faith. And no, but they are the first and the most important by far. The example that parents give, the teaching that parents give, in no way, shape, or form can be replicated by anyone else, not by a priest, not by the pope, not by the bishop, not by anybody. And God made it that way. But part of that responsibility is making sure that little child continues to grow in their faith after baptism. And if you're going to be baptized, it's your responsibility to understand that baptism is just the beginning. And if you're an adult and you're baptized, you have to continue to study. What I'm giving you here is just the basic, basic, basic introduction. Um, so basic, so introductory. So please continue to grow. Now, some questions about baptism. What about a godparent? What's a godparent? 
A lot of misunderstandings about what a godparent is. People think that a godparent is some sort of legal guardian who raises the child in case the parents die, and that's not true. Anybody who knows anything about, at all about the law knows that's not true. But it doesn't stop the rumor from circulating. What's a godparent? They're a role model. Sometimes it's just called a sponsor. They're a role model. They're an example. What does it mean to be a good Catholic? Look at Uncle Joey. Look at you know Aunt Sue. They're your godparent. A role model. That's all. Okay. Um, lastly, here's a mystery for you to, to, to gnarl over. Baptism is necessary. The church knows of no other means by which one can be saved. In the ancient church, they had two equivalents of baptism, however, and these are very, very helpful for us. Baptism of blood and baptism of desire. This is baptism of blood. Let's say that someone like you was studying to enter into the sacraments at Easter time in the days of the ancient Romans, and someone came in in a time of persecution and killed the whole class because that's what they did in the days of the ancient Romans. They killed Christians and people studying to become Christians. And the, Christ, the, the church would say, well, wait a minute, this poor person was studying and they wanted to become, a, uh, they wanted to become baptized, but they were killed before they were baptized. Does that mean they go to hell? And the church said, no, no, no. They came up with an idea called the baptism of blood, that you shed your blood for Christ so much did you love him. Did you receive baptism? You did not. But did you have the effects of baptism? Yes, you did. And then when the persecutions ended, they kind of extended the idea to what we call baptism of desire. Here's a true-to-life probably the most classic example of baptism of desire that I can think of. There was an earthquake in Mexico City about seven, eight years ago, give or take. And during this earthquake, there was literally a baptism going on when the church caved in on the people as they were baptizing the baby. Everybody died. Everybody went to the baptism, right? The priest, the baby, everybody died in the, in the church caved in. Sudden earthquake. Let's pretend like the baptism hadn't happened yet. And the earthquake caved the church in on their heads and they all died. Was the baby baptized? It was not. But we say that's a baptism of desire. They had every intention of baptizing the baby. They just never, got, they just never could, could do it. Um, the church kind of extends that baptism of desire idea in a mysterious way uh, to those who might have been baptized had they known of its importance, had they known of its value. But we do maintain that we know of no other way by which someone may be saved, okay? But we do include those ideas of baptism of blood and baptism of desire. So that's baptism, very briefly, just very, very briefly. Now let's talk about confirmation, which is much easier, okay? Because this is confirmation. Confirmation strengthens and completes what baptism begins. Beginning, middle, and end of all of it. That's it. I'll ask people, what is confirmation? Nine out of ten people will tell me confirmation makes you an adult in the church. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. It, that's not Catholic bar mitzvah, okay? There is no such thing. You know when you become an adult in the church? When you're a boy, you're an adult in the church at 16. When you're a girl, you're an adult in the church at 14. Canon law says that. I find it fascinating that the church thinks that the young women are more mature than the young boys. It's fascinating, but this is what they say. But you become an adult in the church by virtue of turning 14 or 16. That's not confirmation. Confirmation strengthens and completes what baptism began. That's confirmation. It's really simple. The reason why I went for so much information and detail on baptism is because if you understand that, you also understand confirmation. If grace of baptism is to have its full effect, confirmation must be received. If you have gotten baptism only but have never been confirmed, it's like you have one bookend. 
when God wants you to have two bookends. If you think of the bookends as being baptism on one hand and confirmation on the other hand, and if you think of the books in between as being your life, you get the idea. What's the book's stability with only one bookend? Not anything like near as much as it could be with two bookends, okay? And I don't know why Jesus did this. I really don't. But it's like it's a two-part sacrament. It's as if baptism and confirmation are two parts. So for baptism to have its effect, full effect, confirmation must be received. Now, the best example of this, and by the way, I guarantee you when it comes time for the interviews in March before you get your sacraments, you will be asked this. The best example of this was the first ever confirmation, which is Pentecost. Raise your hand if you've heard of Pentecost. Okay, Pentecost was the first ever confirmation. What was the first ever confirmation? Pentecost. Pentecost. Now, what was Pentecost? I've got it here in your notes. It was a quote from the Acts of the Apostles. This is Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit came. Jesus had promised his apostles that after he was ascended into heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit. They had no idea what he was talking about. No idea what he was talking about. If you read through the Gospels, you will find these apostles really didn't understand what was going on until the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Now, the story of Pentecost, which I won't read because it's too long here, is the apostles were all together in one room, and the Holy Spirit suddenly showed up, and it took the form of tongues of fire over their heads and a rushing wind, and it's like a light bulb went on in their souls, and suddenly they understood. They understood everything. All the mysteries were suddenly clear to them, and they burst forth from their upper room in which they were hiding, And they began to preach the gospel for the very first time to the crowds that were gathered down below. They were all gathered for the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, which actually still exists. They call it the Feast of Weeks. But all the crowds gathered down below. The apostles were hiding because they were afraid that they were known accomplices of a convicted and executed enemy of the state, and they thought they might be next. Then suddenly they were preaching the gospel to crowds. Did that sound like they were scared to you? Where'd their fear go? Gone. They were strengthened. They missed something before, but now they have it. They had what they needed to do the job that God had sent them out to do. God had given them a mission, the apostles, to go and preach the gospel to all these lands that had never heard of Jesus before, or the gospel, or think about these, think about these apostles, you know, going into the hinterlands of Germany, and, you know, Thomas went to India, and, you know, trekking across North Africa, and and pro- pro- proclaiming the God of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must have looked at them like he had three heads when they said that for the very first time. They needed all kinds of strength. When did they get the strength they needed to do the job they were born to do? They got that strength at the, at the event of Pentecost, the first ever confirmation. Were you born to do a job? Yes, you were. Do you have everything you need right now to do the job you were born to do? Not if you haven't been confirmed, you don't. But you will at confirmation. You'll be given the second bookend. You'll be given what you need to do what you were born to do. And like every other sacrament, it'll grow with you. Okay. Now, uh, in the early church, baptism and confirmation were given together. In RCIA, they're still given together. People think that the greatest revolution in the history of the church was turning the altar around and saying Mass in English instead of in Latin. But I think it's more accurate to say that the greatest revolution in the history of the church was putting confirmation after First Communion because it used to be baptism and then you immediately got confirmed and then you made your First Communion. But now they make baptism and then First Communion and then confirmation. But at RCIA, we'll have baptism, then confirmation, then First Communion. Now, when you're confirmed, you're anointed with an oil. The oil is called chrism, okay? 
And the words are, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, ordinarily, it's the bishop who does that. To show that you're in full union with the church now. But with the bishop's permission, a priest can do it. And the classic time in which the priest does it is the Easter Vigil. Because there's so many people to be confirmed. And that's going to be me at the Easter Vigil. The bishop's going to give me delegation, authority to offer valid and lawful sacrament of confirmation. And those are the words you'll hear. Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, a cross, sign of the cross is made with a special oil off across your forehead. What's the visible sign there? The oil of chrism. What's the, what's the matter? The oil of chrism. What's the words or the form? Be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And the promise is that God gives you his grace. That's the sacrament of confirmation. Um, the seal symbolizes belonging to Christ. Soldiers always carry the seal of their leader. Now, this is really easy because I've already described it. All I'm doing here is reviewing. What are the effects of, the effects of confirmation? They complete and strengthen what baptism began. What does confirmation do to baptismal grace? It strengthens it and completes it. What does confirmation do to your membership in the church? Strengthens it and completes it. What does confirmation do to your faith? Strengthens it and completes it. What does confirmation do to your hope? What does confirmation do to your charity? What does confirmation do to the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that I mentioned just a few minutes ago? Strengthened and completed. And that common priesthood of the faithful that I described, by which you can offer things up, by which your sacrifices are united to Christ on the cross. What happens, does confirmation do to that? It strengthens it and it completes it. So once I describe this to people, people really want confirmation. They say, hey, I want to be strengthened. I want to be completed. I want to have more faith. I want to have more hope. I want to have more charity. It's all coming your way as a great big gift. And that's confirmation, okay? Now, once again, it makes a spiritual mark on your soul. Just like baptism, you can't undo it. You can't reverse it. You can't repeat it, okay? Now, here's something you're going to find interesting. You also have a sponsor for confirmation, just like you have a sponsor or a godparent for baptism. Once again, the person should be a role model to you a role model of what it means to live the Catholic faith. It might be perfectly true that Uncle Joey is a great guy, but if Uncle Joey isn't going to church on Sunday, he's not a model of the Catholic faith. If he hasn't himself received confirmation and First Communion, he's not a model of the Catholic faith. Uh, if he's not married in the church, he's not a model of the Catholic faith. So either the requirements, you're going to have to get a sponsor for your confirmation. Okay? If you're, if you're going to be baptized and confirmed, it can be the same person. But that person needs to be living the Catholic faith. They themselves have to have gotten confirmation in First Communion, be attending Mass, be married in the church, and they say you should be at least 16 years old, once again, be an adult in the church. Now here's the last thing about confirmation. And this is the part people like best of all. You get to pick a name. You get to pick a saint's name. And when you're confirmed, you'll be addressed by that saint's name. If your saint's name is Philomena, at the moment of confirmation, you will be addressed as Philomena, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Philomena, peace be with you. Whatever, whoever your saint is. Now, you're going to have to pick a saint. So if you're going to be confirmed, pick a saint. Who's your saint? Someone who's a role model for you. Just like your sponsor. Someone who's a role model. Do a little bit of homework. Do a little bit of work. Decide in the heart of your, heart, of your hearts what kind of a person you want to be. What kind of character do you have? Uh, what moves you, what stirs you, what uh, makes you dig down deep and become your best self? What qualities are those? What saint exemplified those qualities? When you hear the story of a life of a saint and that story stirs you, 
That's a good sign. It resonates somewhere within you. That's how you pick a saint. By the way, I don't think anybody should pick Saint Michael the Archangel. Why? Because Michael the Archangel is not a saint. He's an angel. <laughs> an angel never walked this earth. An angel never sweated on a hard day's work. An angel, the bishop forbids me from preventing people from taking Michael the Archangel. But if you have Michael the Archangel as, as your saint, you don't have a saint. You have an angel. By the way, the reason why we call him Saint Michael is because the word for saint and the word for holy are the same word in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. It was a mistranslation into English. He's holy Michael the Archangel. But sometimes you'll find this, yeah, Saint Michael the Archangel is my saint. Okay, you don't have a saint. You've got an angel. But pick a saint. Pick someone who walked this earth. Pick a real human being just like you, who you look up to. Um, and that would be a good role model for you. A boy, people frequently ask these days, can a, can a boy pick a girl's name? Yes. Can a girl pick a boy's name? Yes. Um, frequently, it didn't used to be that way, but these days everyone's asking that. So the answer is yes. Sometimes, I, don't, I doubt this will be true for adults, but with adolescents, sometimes you find people picking names for stupid reasons. Um, for example, a bunch of years there, every girl was, wanted St. Justin. And I said, why? And they all said, well, because I like Justin Bieber. <laughs> Boy, that's a lousy reason. I mean, just St. Justin, he could work overtime on you, I guess, but it, please pick a better name. Pick a name of a saint who you admire, who you look up to. Who you, don't just pick a name because you like the name, okay? Um, and lastly, you will need to go to confession before you receive the sacraments. We'll get to that when we get to the confession class. Uh, but to receive any sacrament after baptism, if you're going to be baptized, you don't need to go to confession first. But if you haven't been baptized, you should go to confession before receiving confirmation because you need to be in a state of grace to receive any sacrament. Okay, so there's a brief review of sacraments plus baptism and confirmation.